Bibles to John chapter 15, after taking a week off. I was with a fellow PCA church in Birmingham. Good to be back this week in John chapter 15, uh, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Our God, we pray that you would give us grace to hear your word as we should with Open minds and teachable hearts, eager to hear from you, hungry to hear from you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would feed your people with your word. Uh, Lord, we do believe that in the context of corporate worship, when an ordained minister doesn't have to be me, there's nothing special about me, but there is something special about the office, that when an ordained minister opens your word in the context of corporate worship, that something uniquely formative takes place. And so we pray that that would happen this morning, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would change lives in this room, and that you, O Christ, would be glorified. Teach us to love as you have loved us, and help me to proclaim it rightly. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I have a problem that tends to come as a surprise to um, to some people, uh, it's one of the most embarrassing things that, that uh, I struggle with. I am the world's worst, well, I don't know if I'm the world's worst speller, but I'm the worst speller that I know. Um, I think the reason that surprises people is because my job is words. That's basically what I do for a living. I do words, and so it's an incredibly inconvenient uh, struggle that I cannot spell words. And when I say I cannot, I mean I literally cannot spell words. Um, Often, there are times when Microsoft Word does the, uh, the red underline thing, and I'll click on it to find uh, the right spelling of the word, and it literally says, we have no suggestions for you. <laughs> we have no idea what you're going for here. Routinely, my computer has no idea what I'm talking about when I write. And this is why I find the uh, National Spelling Bee so amazing. Some people think it's silly that ESPN covers it. I think it's brilliant. Um, because I wake up and, and go to war with spelling every day. It's a sport to me. And, uh, and so uh, something happened this year that I couldn't believe. This last week was the, the big moment, you know. And, uh, and something happened that I just could not believe. I was so happy. I was so proud. I actually knew how to spell the winning word. Um, I, there, are, there are a lot of words I can't spell. Like I said, uh, words that are just common words. But when that word came up, I said, oh my goodness, I know that. I can spell that. Koinonia, K 
K-O-I-N-A-A-N-O-I-A. K-O-I-N-A. I promise I did know it. I did the same thing in the first service. I do know how to spell it. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Koinonia. It's a Greek word. It's the only reason I know it. It's used often in the New Testament. And literally, it is translated as fellowship or uh, communion. Uh, That's the literal meaning, but what happened is that um, it came to be known as kind of the defining mark, koinonia came to be known as the defining mark of the ecclesia, the church. The church, this community, began to be described as a koinonia, as a fellowship, as a communion, and the, the word was used in, in two ways. The koinonia, the fellowship that we have with God, and the koinonia, the fellowship that we have with each other. And what was, what was, um, what was important to the early church was that they realized that the latter was informed by the former. In other words, um, literally the fellowship that we have with God forms the fellowship that we have with each other. And this is the message of our passage this morning, specifically in regards to love. We are a community who has koinonia with the love of God, fellowship with the love of God, and therefore our koinonia, our fellowship, reflects that same love. We are the community who knows God's love, and then loves each other as God has loved us. We are a community formed by the way we have been loved. Let's look at that together in two ways. We're going to see the priority of love and the nature of love. So Jesus is going to show us how important this thing called love is, and then what this thing called love looks like. The priority. Um, This section here is a summation, um, you could even say culmination, of the entire theme of love that we've been looking at all the way back, honestly, to chapter 13 of John. We have talked a lot about love this year in this series, and it all comes to its head here as love becomes the highest application of the upper room discourse. Verse 12 and 17 are bookends. Those verses are serve as bookends of the passage. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Same application repeated at the beginning and the end of the section. And it's very simple. You need to love one another. And what this means is that all of the love talk that we've been exploring in the upper room Discourse finds its highest application in our love for one another. One might be tempted to say that the highest application should be love for God. Shouldn't we love God the most? And I would agree. Jesus would agree. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. This is the first and greatest commandment. But what Jesus has effectively done in the upper room discourse is unpack exactly what it means to love God. First and foremost, you remember he delved into the depths of what it looks like for God to love God. We spent a lot of time looking at Trinitarian love, the Father's love for the Son, 
The Son's love for the Father, the Spirit's work of sharing the Trinitarian love by dwelling within us that we might experience this love. And then not just experience it, but participate in it. We love God in the same way that God loves Himself. And our love for God, Jesus teaches us, is ultimately expressed in love for the Son. For to love the Son is to love the Father, Jesus has told us. Because the Father and the Son are one. But what does it mean to love the Son? Jesus has already defined that as well. It is obedience to His commandments. Those who keep His commandments love Him. To obey Jesus is to love Jesus. Okay, so what are these commandments that we are to obey? After all, Jesus commanded a lot. Well, it all comes down to one command in verses 12 and 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So what I'm trying to get you to see here is that what Jesus has done throughout the discourse is create kind of this unbreakable chain from love for God to love for each other. From the love that literally exists within the fellowship, the koinonia of the Trinity, to love that exists within the fellowship, the koinonia of believers. How do you love the Father? You love the Son. How do you love the Son? You obey the Son's commandments. What are the Son's commandments? They are summed up in one. Love one another. How do I love God? I love you. How do you love God? You love me. This is practically the way God's people express love for God. And I do mean God's people. I do mean you and me. When Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, that one another is very specific. We've already talked about this. This, is, this discourse is to his people, to his community. And especially now, these are his last words, and these are zeroing in on his community. So when he says one another, he's talking about us. He's talking about the, the people who share this fellowship the koinonia of those who follow Jesus. Our love for one another within this fellowship is the highest form of obedience to Jesus. Yes, of course we are to love the lost. Yes, of course we are to love the poor. Yes, of course we are to love even our enemies. But Jesus is saying that the chief command, first and foremost, is that we have to love each other. Love for one another is like God's love for himself that we have looked at. It is, it is first and foremost. But God's love for himself then overflowed into love for us. And this is the way we are to think about this fellowship. Like the fellowship of the Trinity, our love begins first and foremost within. Love for one another. But this love is so full that it is meant to overflow into love for others outside this fellowship. Yes, the lost, yes, the poor, yes, even our own enemies, that this is like this central hub of love, of koinonia, of God's love that explodes out into every area. This is how the church is supposed to be known as those who love each other. So summing up, to get at the priority of love, summing up Jesus' whole discourse on love, which is what this passage is doing, love for God is obviously the Christian's highest aim. But love for God is expressed in love for the Son, so that must become the Christian's highest aim. 
But love for the Son is expressed in obedience to the Son's commands. So that must become our highest aim. But obedience to the Son's commands is expressed in one command, love for one another. So this must become our highest aim. I love the almighty triune God by loving you. And you love God by loving me. But what does this love look like? That's actually a really, really important question. Because to say the word love in our day and age is incredibly difficult to understand. I just did a wedding last night, it's wedding season. This is one of the things I talked about. Is how, what do we even mean when we say love? This word has been cheapened and even I, I like to say it has been vandalized. Its definition has been vandalized by this world. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love one another? Well, Jesus doesn't just prioritize love. He defines it. Let's spend most of our time looking at that, the nature of love. The priority of it all is that we would love each other. What does that look like? Let's look at the nature of love. In verse 12, Jesus says this, love one another as I have loved you. You. Now that's the nature of love. But then what he does in verses 13 through 16 is describe how he has loved us so that we can know exactly what it means to love as I have loved you. So verses 12 and 17 are kind of the bookends where he says you need to love each other as I have loved you. And then in between 13 and 16, he describes his love for us. And what's going to come out of this are four characteristics of his love that I want us to see in verses 13 through 16. So let me do this. Let me just state them up front and then show them, uh, go into detail in our passage. Um, What does it mean to be loved by God? Four characteristics of Christ's love. It is sacrificial, vulnerable, intentional, and purposeful. If you didn't get those, that's okay. We're gonna go through each of them slowly. Let's consider each of them. First, his love is sacrificial. Verse 13. He goes immediately, says, love one another as I, have, as I have loved you. And then in verse 13, he immediately just starts describing his love. Greater love has no one than this, as someone laid down his life for his friends. So the first thing that Jesus singles out about his love is the sacrificial nature of it. And this, of course, is the ultimate display of God's love. You already know this, right? This is how we know what love is. Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So you've heard this idea a hundred times, and I hope you hear it from this pulpit hundreds more times, thousands more times, that the cross is the ultimate display of God's love. And so when he says, love each other as I have loved you, first and foremost, he says, die for each other as I have died for you. When we talk about Christ's love, the first thing that comes to mind has to be his cross. Lay down our life for each other. But here's the problem. The difficulty about this expectation is how does that play out practically? How how do you apply that? I, I can't remember the last time I had the opportunity to literally lay down my life for you or for you to lay down your life for me. So how do we apply this? Well, the other way to say that is I have the opportunity to die for you every single day. The principle of defining love as laying down one's life is that love is necessarily sacrificial. I can say I love you 
And I can say I love this community. But if that love doesn't cost me, then it is not love. When love is defined as one's, as laying down one's life, then what it does is it necessarily includes all of the lesser sacrifices of love. It necessarily includes all of the lesser deaths that we have to die because we love you. In other words, what Jesus has done is he said, here's what love is, ultimate sacrifice. Well, if it includes the ultimate sacrifice, then it must include the lesser sacrifices, those small deaths that he calls us to die for each other. In other words, if, if laying down one life is the definition of love, then surely it means I should be sacrificing my money for you, for this community. If I'm supposed to lay down my life for you, surely I'm supposed to lay down my finances. Surely it should cost me to love this community. Surely it means that I should be looking for opportunities to serve. If laying down my life for you, if love is laying down my life for you, then surely it includes the nursery. If I'm supposed to die for you, I should probably watch your kids. Surely it means that I should prioritize your preferences over mine. If, I, if, if love means I have to lay down my life for you, then at least, if I don't have that opportunity, at least I could say I'll lay down my preferences for you. Surely it means that I should let my schedule be interrupted by this community. Surely it means that I should be inconvenienced by this community. And on and on we could go. If love is defined as ultimate sacrifice, then surely it includes lesser sacrifice. So first and foremost, his point is this, love comes at a cost. If you claim to love, but your love does not cost you, it is not love because the love of Christ cost him ultimately therefore love is necessarily sacrificial it's also vulnerable again verse 13 greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends now that is an interesting um, that it's interesting that he's introducing that word there um, he, he, he immediately goes into friendship because he wants us to start viewing this as friendship. But, but what's interesting about this is that Jesus calls us friends. Now, this has allusions to the Old Testament where uh, there are these great covenantal patriarchs who got this honor, Abraham, Moses. They were called friends of God. Nobody would ever imagine being able to say, I'm friends with God. But these patriarchs were called friends of God. And the reason they were called friends of, with God is because they got special revelation into the heart and the mind of God. Well, when Jesus defines friendship, he defines it with his friendship toward us. He says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Here's how Jesus defines friendship here, vulnerability. And you already know this to be true, that friendship is vulnerability, whether you can articulate that or not. What makes a friend? Knowledge, right? My friends are those who know me, and I know them. Friendship is not time together. Some of my closest friends I see very rarely. 
Friendship is not similarity. Some of my closest friends are very different than me. It's not just common interests. Some of my closest friends enjoy things I couldn't care less about. What is it that makes them my friends? They know me. And I know them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Friendship is vulnerability. I don't call you servants. Because servants don't know what the master's doing. Instead, I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You know me. There's nothing I have withheld from you. You know everything about me. In fact, I've let you in on Trinitarian conversation. All that my father has said to me, I've made it known to you. I'm holding nothing back. You know me. I know you. We're friends. And so love requires vulnerability. I could say I love you. And I could even sacrifice for you. And I can even know everything about you. But if I have not vulnerably let you know me, then I am not loving you. Have you ever thought about love that way? We talk often about anonymity's danger, about doing the individual Christian thing where nobody knows you and how dangerous that is. You need to be known by community so that this community can help you. How can we help you if we don't know you? And that's true, but Jesus is actually rephrasing vulnerability here this morning. You know what he's saying? Being known is not just good for you, it's good for the community. It's not just that you need to be known. We need to know you. Don't say you love us if you are not known by us. There are, listen, the reason I'm saying this is there are a lot of people who do church it seemingly really well, who do Christian community seemingly really well, and it's this. They, they, they serve really well in the community. They are always quick to help out if there's a need. Um, they use their gifts to benefit the community. They could even be leaders within Christian community. And yet, despite all these different things, they don't love the community. And the reason why is because they will not be known. They refuse to be known. They refuse vulnerability. And in so doing, they refuse love. Christ's love is sacrificial. It is vulnerable. Thirdly, it is intentional. Continue on with verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. An important part of Christ's love is that it always initiates. He does not wait on you to love him before he chooses to love you. Instead, he chooses to love us and then we love because he first loved us. Christ's love is intentional. That is to say, he chooses to love. We view love not as intentional but contractual. <laughs> Meaning, I'll love you when you love me. That'll be this arrangement. And if you don't love me, I'm not going to love you. Or we view love as emotional. I'll love you if I feel like loving you. And if I don't feel like loving you, meaning you're a difficult person to love, I'm not going to love you. The problem with love like that is that nobody will ever be loved. If Jesus just loved those who first loved him, if Jesus loved those whom were easy to love, if Jesus was not intentional with his love, then nobody would be loved by Jesus. And if our community likewise is not intentional with love, then nobody in community will ever be loved. But what if we did love like Jesus? A choice 
to be intentional with our love. To love you even before you love me. To love you even if you don't love me. To love you even when I don't feel like loving you. If love becomes this this determined, gritty choice that I make where we choose to be intentional with our love toward everyone in this community because we took vows to do so when we joined this community. If we do love that way, then no one is excluded from love. And might I just take the liberty to say that our community more than any other should get this aspect of love. We believe in the election of God. Theologically, we like the verse, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's a proof text for us. But do we love it practically? Because what predestination teaches is that even before we chose to love God, God chose to love us. Are you willing to choose to love others even before they choose to love you? Are you willing to pursue like God's sovereign providence pursued you? Are you willing to choose like God chose you before the foundations of the world? Or are you just going to wallow in self-pity because community isn't inviting you, initiating, and pursuing you? When it comes to God's love for you, He went first. Now, when it comes to your love for others, you first. You initiate. You go. You choose to love. His love is sacrificial, vulnerable, intentional, and finally, purposeful. Continue on, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is really important, okay? The highest definition of love in our day and age is tolerance. That is the air we breathe. Love equals tolerance. To disagree, to challenge, to correct, to confront, and certainly to rebuke has become the very antithesis of love. But Jesus defines his love for us by his ability to produce fruit in our life. He defines his love by the fruit that it produces in our life. And Jesus took that very seriously. His love is expressed. When you look at his life, his love is expressed, yes, in acceptance, in accepting people for where they are, but always, every single time, pushing them to become who they should be. He's just so relentless, not just in the Gospels, but in our lives, by the way. Always challenging, always correcting, at times confronting and rebuking whatever it takes to prune those he loves that they may bear more fruit because he loves you enough to want what is best for you and what is best for you is not some weak enabling tolerance but strong sanctifying discipleship he just loves you too much to leave you where you are or to put it positively he loves you enough to mess with you He loves you so much, he's going to mess with you. Because this is love. What about you? Is our love purposeful or enabling? Are we courageous enough with each other to actually push each other towards fruitfulness? That we're not content to let each other be where we are, but we're pushing each other in love towards fruitfulness. Or 
do we fear each other more than we love each other? A church that does not practice church discipline is not a loving church, despite what our culture may say. A church that does not practice church discipline is not a loving church. It's an enabling church. Likewise, members of churches who do not practice bold, courageous love are not loving each other, they're enabling each other. Now, in order to prevent, perhaps um, correct even, religious bullying, whenever you talk this way, to, to hedge that off, I must point out that this characteristic of love cannot be detached from the others that we talked about. In other words, if your love is not sacrificial, it is not vulnerable, and it is not intentional, but it is only purposeful, meaning like you're Mr. or Mrs. Holy Spirit around here, who's just existing to, you know, get everybody to bear more fruit. If it's only purposeful, void of sacrificial, vulnerable, intentional, then then you are not loving and you're not helpful. You're, You're mean and you're hurtful. But tell me, though, but tell me this from your experience. If someone has loved you in a sacrificial way, if someone has loved you in a vulnerable way, if someone has loved you in an intentional way, then are you not open and even eager to be loved by them in a purposeful way? If someone has loved you with sacrifice and vulnerability and intentionality, do you not welcome their challenge, their correction, their rebuke? So yes, love is purposeful. It is not enabling, but it is not exclusively purposeful. It is all all of these four. It is sacrificial, vulnerable, intentional, and purposeful. Love one another as I have loved you requires all four. And so by way of application, I would like to ask you, I don't want to overwhelm you um, by saying, let's work on all four. Here's, here's my application to you. And, you know, Will just prayed for intentional summer, so maybe this could be an intention of the summer. Why don't you just choose one and go after it? Choose one of those four where you feel like your love is deficient, where you are failing to love one another. And I, I bet one stuck out more than the others. Focus on that as where your love is deficient and actually work on it. Perhaps it's My love is not sacrificial. I'm nice to people that come, but I'm not sacrificing anything for this community. I'm not serving like I need to serve. I'm not giving like I need to serve. Maybe you need to work on your sacrifice. Perhaps it's vulnerability that I serve, I sacrifice, I do it all, but nobody knows me. It might just be I need to join a parish group and get known. I need to open myself up to community so that I can say that I love this community. Perhaps it's intentional. Maybe you're just the person who's just like, you know what? Nobody ever comes and talks to me. Nobody ever does anything to me. Nobody, you know, just da 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 Maybe you should just go love someone. Maybe, maybe God has somebody, you just, this summer, I'm going, to, I'm going to love that person. Maybe it's purposeful. Maybe, maybe you just fear people. You fear those you love, which is not loving them. And maybe it's time for you who have demonstrated so beautifully your sacrifice and intentionality and vulnerability, maybe it's time to set, step up the challenge. Maybe challenge those you love. The, the Spirit will work that application out. But choose one and go after it. But as you do, please do not forget the entire point of this whole passage. The entire point of the whole discourse. Perhaps you were overwhelmed and even despairing about your failure to love. I certainly was as I wrote this sermon. I get it. It's 
It's one thing to be able to spell koinonia. It's another thing to practice it, to do it. But let us not forget what is at the center of our koinonia. The word means fellowship. Well, what are we fellowshipping around? Not our love for each other, but Christ's love for us. I am so thankful that the message of the upper room discourse is not, if you love one another, then I will love you. If that was so, then Jesus would love none of us. But that's not what he says. He says, love one another as I have loved you. He has loved you. He does love you. And that is not contingent upon your ability to love like he loves. His love is just good. It is just perfect. And it is just unfailing. Perfectly sacrificial. Perfectly vulnerable. Perfectly intentional. Perfectly purposeful. And it is so no matter whether your love is like his or not. He already loves you. So just lose yourself in his perfect love. That it might fill you and overflow into a fellowship, a koinonia that loves each other as Jesus has loved us. Let me pray for his help. Or teach us to love as you have loved. Forgive us that we have not loved as you have loved. Fill us now with your sacrament of love. Fill us that we might love as your love is represented at this table. May we be this to others. But first, Lord, we need to be filled with you. So fill us, we pray, with your perfect love. In Jesus' name, amen.